I want to get into this tonight. Uh, the reason I want to do so, to me, this is a huge teaching when it comes to, again, understanding covenant. Covenant is just not that which takes place between two parties, which we've studied the covenants from the Old Testament and the New Testament, or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, plus the covenant then that's included with that that brings about the covenant that leads to the seed, which is the birth of Christ. That, that's, that's another time. In fact, we're going to be um, publishing, we're doing just a, a few more tweaks on it, and then we're going to be putting out uh, the book that we did years ago, but we're updating it for the covenant series, the covenant study. So you'll be able to take a look and understand covenants from Genesis through Revelations and what those are, especially focusing in on the Old and New Testament or the Old Covenant, New Covenant. But in understanding the covenant, I think it's always important to remember that there are two phrases that are, in my book, of supreme importance. The first expression in covenant is, is the expression in Christ, in Christ, because it's a phrase that indicates that you and I are vitally in and a part of the historical events that took place, and it is a phrase that indicates that by the Holy Spirit, we have actually been joined and made one with Jesus Christ so that his history has become our history. We are vitally one with him in all that he has accomplished and all that he is now even in heaven. The second phrase that we find throughout the New Testament is in the spirit. That's a huge phrase. It indicates really the dynamic experience of the power of the spirit actually joining us to Christ and his work and making it real in our lives. Now, what originated in eternity in the loving heart of God the Father was affected in history and is received and experienced by the people of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. The problem in the church, I believe today, is that what we do is we tend to focus on either one phrase or the other phrase, one phrase to the exclusion of the other. And you see, on the one hand, you have the work of Christ, which is studied objectively, and it's out there in history with really no or, or little, I should say, sense of the spirits making the work effective in our lives today. And then you have, on the other hand, a lot that are fa fascinated with the with the Spirit's power with really no interest or little interest in understanding what happened in the historical work of Christ in his making of the new covenants. And, and the two phrases really, really, really belong together. The Spirit is the presence of our covenant God in power, making real and vital in us all that has been accomplished by Christ. Okay? Now, I, I cannot emphasize enough the place of the Spirit in the covenant. That's huge. Apart from the Holy Spirit, friend, there, there is no covenant. The lifestyle of, of people 
in the new covenant is that of, of loving even as they are loved by God. That is an impossible goal apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The supernatural gifts of the Spirit are part of the dynamic of the covenant people and are totally the work of the Spirit. So you've got the old covenant that Israel lived under, which, as we've shared before, was one of the shadows, promises, hope. So the new covenant is called in, in Hebrews and in the, a, a better covenant. And that better covenant is founded on the work of Christ and is primarily the covenant of fulfillment, of power, in which God and his people are dynamically joined as one in the work of the Spirit. Now, the covenant seeks the union of two parties, something that the old covenant, although <laughs> revealing the presence of God dwelling in the people's midst, is, is, is a very real way uh, that really they could only anticipate wait for what was being spoken of. For example, let me make myself clear on this. Ezekiel saw clearly that the union of the Spirit living within the believer would accomplish that union. He looked for the day, in other words, when God would dwell, not merely with, but within his people. Look at what it says in Ezekiel. It says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, both Ezekiel and Jeremiah saw it as the day when the law would be not something that was exterior, but an interior uh, bent on life. Look at it in Jeremiah. It says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, the heart in Scripture is always understood be the source and the life spring of behavior. Proverbs chapter 4, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. So understand something here. The law would no longer be a list of exterior commands, but would arise from within. I mean, it's no longer, uh, this is what you must do, and it, but it's it's, it's entirely different now. It's, this is what I, I want to do. Uh, see, behind all of God's commandments is, is one command, to love as what? He loves. And the new covenant joins us to the love of God by the Spirit, who is the driving force and ability to live that kind of a life. The new covenant literally goes far beyond the demands of the old, which was summed up as love your neighbor as yourself. Under the new covenant, the spirit coming with the believer pours out the divine love 
at the center of the being. Look, look at Romans 5, because it tells us, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That word poured out, it's, just, it's not some picture that just, you know, you pour it out. That word literally is, is a cattle. It's, it's a good picture word of it would be Niagara Falls. That's the power, the force of being poured out. The old King James says, shed abroad. It's, it's, it's huge. And, and what that means is that the command of Jesus as a result of being poured out, shed abroad, becomes possible. In John's gospel in the 13th chapter, it says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have, if you have love for one another. <laughs> it just brings me back to some old pictures of the infighting in the church kind of thing and how they would scrabble over this or this color or that chandelier or this, you know, all sorts of different, uh, don't like them pews, those pews. But, you know, they will know that we're his, his disciples, if we have love one for another. Look, all, all the prophets saw that the new covenant would be a covenant of the Spirit. And, and when he would indwell God's people. And from that presence, the heart of law would be a, a natural direction that the heart would go as a result. So when speaking of coming to Christ, you know, a lot of evangelists will go, you know, and, and call people to receive Jesus or let Jesus come into your heart. And, you know, all that's true. I'm not, <laughs> please, don't misread me. That's true. The, but the New Testament never speaks of salvation in that way, if you take a look at it. it. Always the New Testament, what's interesting about that is it speaks of being a Christian as one receiving the Spirit and the Spirit's dwelling within the person. It's through the Spirit that Jesus dwells in us. You've heard me say it many times. What is the one main job of the Holy Spirit? Because we get all bent out on, on gifts of the Spirit, you know, baptism of the Spirit, all that. No, the main function of the Holy Spirit is to impart the very life of Christ to us. And Paul is adamant that if the Spirit does not dwell in us, then we are not Christians at all. And by describing our conversion as simply receiving Jesus, we then believe that the Spirit reception comes kind of later. And, and it's for, you know, somebody more of a good Christian than I am, a spiritual elite kind of thing. But the Scripture is plain. No, no one can belong to Christ without having the Holy Spirit. Nor can we know that God is our Father and we are His children apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Take a look at Romans. It says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And, and then move straight on to Galatians. It says, 
And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Look, the very blessing, the very first blessing the Father would bestow upon the believer is the gift of knowing the Spirit through whom he or she has come to know as a result of the covenant. And, and, and you take a look at the leaders of the early church, especially within that first century, what they would do is they would lay hands and pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had wooed them, had brought them to Christ to confess him as Lord, and had brought about the miracle of their being joined to Christ. Now they prayed that the spirit they lived in would be fully known to them. Take a look at 1 Corinthians. It says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. The spirit, friend, is the one who puts us into the body of Christ. And then we drink deeply of him. One, one description of the Spirit's relationship to a believer is the, the phrase, fall upon. Acts 10, 44. And, and I love this one. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. The expression fell upon, it's an old English expression that means to give a bear hug, to embrace fervently. It's used as well in Luke's gospel, the 15th chapter. It says, and he arose, remember this parable? He arose and came to his father, and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Kissed him and kissed him. I mean, it describes the outpouring of the passionate, unconditional love of the father towards his returning son. It is significant as well to remember that Luke wrote Acts that we just read as well as his gospel. And, and, and as a result, there's really no doubt as to what he meant by this phrase. The first experience of the believer is meant to be a bear hug given by God. Given by God as the, the, the Holy Spirit welcoming the new believer into the family of God. When, when we are given a bear hug, a, a fervent embrace, all the ideas associated with love move from some intellectual concept to the actual experience of being loved. When we say that God loves us, please don't let us ever fall into that trap of thinking in terms of a cold statement of doctrine. That, that drives me crazy. We got to understand that the Holy Spirit is God in the act of loving us, embracing us, uh, and his unfolding arms around us. The Holy Spirit is God running to us, find, coming, flinging his arms around us and passionately loving on us. It's a quantum leap, really, between knowing about a position in Christ, our representative, and actually experiencing the covenant in the bear hug of God the Spirit. See, the, the Spirit 
dynamically connects us with the covenant that's been made in history. He, he is God with us to make real and vital the incredible promises of the new covenant. He, he joins us to the life, the, 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 uh, the reality, the, the, the experience of the ascended Christ and his enabling power to live his life day by day by day. The Holy Spirit inducts us into the world of the new covenant called heavenly places, which is now our real world. We, I mean, we live and work in this passing, can I call it kind of phony world? But we are not of it. For by the Spirit, we are living moment by moment by moment in Christ. The new covenant describes a union between God and man that is so complete as to be paralleled to the glory of God dwelling in the tabernacle and the temple of the old covenant. The bodies of, 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 of people have, have become you and I the dwelling place now of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word that describes the entire temple area is Huron, Huron. But the word for the innermost part, that innermost place of the temple, the dwelling of God's glory in the midst of his people called the Holy of Holies is Neon. Now, speaking to the believers in Corinth, Paul describes each of them, okay, as naos, the holy of holies filled with the divine presence. First Corinthians says, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. In chapter 6, verse 19, it says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a, at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, back then, a, a man, I mean, under the old covenant, a man or a woman, I mean, they, they could never imagine that kind of a privilege. Again, under the old covenant, the glory of God lived in a tent, and later you, you have a house that they would go to. So to say that the glory was within them, <laughs> mind-boggling. It's beyond their comprehension. In all that we do in our relationships, we are the bearers of the divine presence. Be like that. We, we can never think of ourselves apart, okay, from our absolute unity with the Spirit of God. We can never think of that direction. It's by the presence of the Spirit within us that our relationship to Jesus is made real. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Take a look at John's Gospel in the 14th chapter. It says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may, be a that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he 
dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Verse 20 says, it, At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And, and, and in verse 23 it says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come, we will come to him and make our home with him. Those are some huge words. Understand that our covenant relation to God hinges on the Holy Spirit's being given to dwell within us. Jesus said that that day, that day of the coming of the Spirit would be the day of believers coming to know union. In that day, the day of the Spirit's coming, the believer would know, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And again, we will come to him and make our home with him. There, there, there is, there, there's, in my book, there's no more intense phrase to describe our union that you in me and I in you. Your, your body, your mind, your emotions are the home of deity through the presence of the Spirit. Do you, do you grab that? Your, your body, your mind, your emotions, the, 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 the home of where the presence of the Spirit dwells. Stop it and just let those words sink in for a moment. I mean, hold your skin for a second. I got extra, so I can hold a lot. But if you hold it, know that the Spirit dwells in every cell of your body. The, that, that intense union that we have with the triune God is described here in, in John 15 in the image of the vine and the branches. In John 15, I mean, it covers verses 1 through 8, but I'm just going to pull a couple. It says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. We're not dealing with a parable here, friends, but a parallel in these verses between the relationship of a vine to its branches and the relationship we have to Jesus through the Spirit. In verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he emphatically states that he is that vine. We are the branches. And everything that is true of a vine's relationship to the branch is true of his relationship to believers. And again, I, I, I got to emphasize that he reports the vine-branch relationship as an accomplished fact, not an idea not something that is a parable. It's an accomplished fact. This is where we believers now are in our relationship with him. It's, and it's important to see this because, fr quite frankly, there are a lot of people who would see this incredible intimate relationship as something the believer moves toward maybe in the future, you know, in a deeper life experience. Uh, you know, I've seen people pray that 
you know, God, help us to, you know, get to that place, to that state, to that relationship. This is not an experience of, of, of something for advanced believers, okay, in class 303 or 404. But the way we understand our covenant relationship to him from the first moment of our salvation. We, we, we do not know or understand this relationship when we're reborn any more than a newborn baby understands what being a human is all about. <laughs> but like the baby, we grow into what is and has been true from the moment of conception. It, it will take the rest of our lives to begin to fathom the depth of what this means. And we continue and continue to grow in that experience of it. But we will never grow in the knowledge and experience of such a relationship until we grasp the truth that we are now in Christ. Even if through, through ignorance we, we, we haven't yet lived in its power, the bottom line, this is still our address. Our address is in Christ. He is saying to the disciples uh, that, that, that are gathered around the table, this is where you are, and you are to work life out from this basis. He, it, this is not a command to try to become a branch. It is not an appeal to our willpower to try. He is letting us know and he's letting us in on the mystery of our relationship to God in the new covenant. It is a necessity in my book that we learn the meaning of the words, abide in me. There, there's, there's other translations that try to capture the meaning of the phrase, translate, translated it as dwell in or live in or remain in and, and remain united to. When this word is used of persons, the phrase describes one person persevering in remaining in union with another, to be one with the other in heart, in mind, and in will. It describes a very real union of fellowship and communication between two or more people. It, when you understand the phrase, it is, it is huge. It is significant to note that Jesus describes his intimate relationship with the Father as a mutual indwelling, a union with this phrase. Abiding is translated here, for example, as dwells. Take a look at John 14. Do you not know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. We, we, we have seen that he, he has already said that the day of the Spirit be, being given he says, they will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now he uses the phrase again to describe the relationship that he has with each believer. 
that, that little phrase is at the heart of the new covenant. That's why I, I'm, I, I say it this way. It's describing the incredible union that exists. Christ is in the believer, period. The, the believer is in Christ, period. And Christ is in the Father as the Father is in him, period. And Colossians kind of sums it up. It says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The, the, the phrase is, is the key to the entire vine branch relationship. This is how the believer receives and draws his or her life from the life of Jesus. <clears throat> John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, nada. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. How many know the people takes that verse 7, extracts it from chapter 15 without any idea of what verse 4 and 5 have to say? In his epistle, John describes the believer as one who is abiding in Christ in God. Now, take a look at chapter 4 there. It says in verse 15, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said, Hmm. Hmm. Go call your husband and come here. I know I put in the wrong scripture there. That's that's not what what is that what I have up there too? Yeah, I do. Well, let me just put it this way: the, the Christian life. <laughs> Hello, that woke us up, huh? The Christian life is the continual act of remaining in Him, okay? Dwelling in Him, being aware of Him as our life, and preserving in this relationship. It it it, it is choosing to be present to him who is committed to be present with us. Faith is being present in one's spirit, one's inmost self to God who is love, knowing that he is the final truth and that he has spoken. Just like John 2, or 2 John says here, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. In that presence, we say the amen to his will and the word of truth. It is, it is the result of our abiding in him that we obey and live his life in our behavior. It just, it's a natural outflow. First John says this, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. In other words, the result of abiding in him and he in them is, is, is the keeping of his commandments. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. 
Again, the relationship of Christ, the vine, and us believers, the branches, abiding in him describes the extent of the unity with Christ that we, we enjoy. It, 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 it does away with the kind of notion that he is, you know, up there or out there or over here or that we come to some meeting at the church in order to find him. We already live joined to him as the source of our life, not independent. And that's the way most believers operate is in independence, their own way, their own mindsetting, their own, and, and don't realize that vitally. Look, the branches of the vine can't function without being vitally united to the flow of, of, of vine sap that makes the vine a, a living vine. The life of the vine is the energy, the, the source that produces the fruit that, that's going to be found on the branches. The branches produce the fruit that is to be found on the branches. Now, the branches that produce the fruit, they do so from that sap that is surging through them, and it's natural for vine life to produce grapes. <laughs> the branches don't struggle with that. Out comes a grape. No. It's not some impossible task. And, and, and you don't see a, a grapevine producing an orange, something foreign to the nature of the vine. The, the living of, of, of God and that, that living love of God in our behavior is not the ultimate marathon act of our willpower or attempting to be like Jesus. Got to be like Jesus. I mean, let's accept the fact that the life that the new covenant portrays is impossible for, for the unaided person to accomplish. I, I mean, it can only take place by Jesus himself living in us by his spirit. He becomes the source he becomes the ability to live the life of divine love that is the command of the new covenant. And, and, and when that is understood, the Christian life, listen, it, it's, it's not a labor to produce a lifestyle that's, that's awkward and foreign to us. Well, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. I'm going to live for Jesus. When the center and source of our life is the foundation of love himself, when you talk about a lifestyle of divine love, it's not foreign, it's not awkward, it's natural. Look, the, the, the mark of dead religion is to be found in the dedication of that person who's, you know, devotee, let's say, to keep vows with a view to try to please God. The Pharisees in the days of Jesus spoke of this as taking the yoke of the law. You know, you talk about oxen that were yoked together to pull the plow, so they saw themselves as yoked to the law, observing its very command, attempting, uh, you know, by their willpower to keep it perfectly. And, and what it did is, in, in, 
is produced total spiritual weariness to the point of exhaustion. And you're dealing with a burnout of the spirit. To, to, to those intense and, 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 and by that time weary people and, and those who followed them, Jesus issued this incredible invitation. In Matthew, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He called them to abandon the yoke of dead commands and rules that gave no aid in keeping them and come to him who promised to be the light within them that would fulfill all the rules that God had ever demanded. Christianity is not a, a list of rules that are superior to the Ten Commandments. He, he was not offering them the latest and the best update of, of the way of the law. He wasn't operating in the realm of the law, but in the realm of life. That's the difference. He came to bring the new covenants. Now, you've heard me talk about it, but I'll say it again. The word used in, 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 in the Greek language for new is not the word used to describe the latest, say, model in the series, as you would describe a new car. I mean, in, in that sense, new would mean the latest, the greatest, the most improved edition of a long line of models. New, I mean, I, I, back in, 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 when I graduated from high school, back in 1882, I think it was, <laughs> back in 74, I bought me a brand new Chevelle. Paid 3,600 bucks for it. Woo, wouldn't you love to pay 3,600 bucks for it? It doesn't look anything like the Malibu of today, right? Because it's the latest and greatest edition of a long line of models. Now, when you come to the New Covenant and the word new, as it's used in the New Covenant, it has the meaning of new in kind. I mean, if I go back to the illustration of a new car, it means new form, kind of transport, let's say. The New Covenant is, is not an updated rehash of religion by law, but introduced new concepts that had never, ever conceived in the wildest dreams of the prophets. Now, not, not a list of, of rules, but being joined, being joined to the life of perfect love himself. We can't think of a grape-producing branch apart from the vine life that flows through it. Uh, now, you can discuss separately, you know, as if you're a botanist in that, in that sense, you, you know, study and research them differently, the vine, the branch, the grape. But in reality, there, there, there is no such thing. I mean, grapes are called the fruit of the vine, not the fruit of the branch. Hello? I mean, even so, a believer can never think of, of himself or herself apart from the Spirit of Christ living the life of Jesus within and through them. 
The grapes are the life of the vein, uh, the vein, the vine. And, and that's translated now into a form that can be eaten, it can be enjoyed, juicy, and just dribble down your cheek and so forth and so on. But, but, but it's, it, 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 by, by anybody, how many here have ever just, you know, going through the produce section, you pop off all those grapes and taste it, you know? I know, it's called stealing. So the ultimate goal of the believer's union is that the life of Christ may be released through his or her humanity to the blessing of the world, just like the grape is the blessing. It's the, it's the fruit that becomes the blessing. John 15 says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do, again, nothing. Now, what's maybe even more wonderful to me is that Christ is joined to and known by the branches. By definition, we speak of a vine, not a stump. Vine life is expressed through the branches. The sap of life of the vine has to have branches through which to express, to produce the grapes. Apart from the branches, there would be no way of seeing the vine or identifying the nature of that vine's life. And so as a result, we can never think of ourselves apart from being joined to Christ. And even more amazingly, we cannot think of Jesus except as he is joined to the body, the church, through whom he lives and works on this earth today. Listen to how Paul explained his own life. This is my favorite verse in the whole, scripture, in the whole of scriptures. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul never, ever spoke of trying to be like Jesus. Did you notice that? He never, ever spoke of trying to be like Christ, but of Christ himself living in and through him. He based his preaching, his teaching, concerning the Christ-like lifestyle of the believers in Philippi here. Look at this reality. Philippians says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but how much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. I can give you, you know those verses with me. I can give you an hour explanation on them. But they had to work out, or literally what they had to do is what it's saying is bring to harvest their salvation and do so with this great awe and seriousness. But they could only accomplish this because God the Spirit was the one within who was authoring 
both the will and the action. He was, look, praying for the Galatians to come to maturity. (laughs) Paul described his goal in prayer as Christ being formed in them. Take a look at it in Galatians 4. It says, my children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. If Christ was formed in them, he was not merely beside them to comfort them and to advise them. He wasn't ahead of them to be followed, uh, you know, like a guide showing them where to put their feet. He was not at a distance, uh, like a distant heaven thing, awaiting for a long-distance call, let's say. It means that he was in them, one with their true and inmost selves. Paul understood that his preaching was the living Christ that was ministering through him. Take a look at Romans. He says, For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me, in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedient. His ministry was not doing something for God, but Christ ministering in and through him. Paul Paul was was jailed by the Roman authorities for his faith. And if you remember from the jail cell, he wrote to the Philippians. He explained in this intensely personal passage his, his feelings as he sat in jail and awaited the verdict, which obviously, as you know, could mean freedom or the death sentence. And he asked for their prayers, and then he wrote this. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For him to be in the jail was for Christ to be there experiencing it in him. Let me me say that again. For Paul to be sitting in that jail was for Christ to be there experiencing it, not beside him, not in front of him, not behind him or around him, in him to the extent that onlookers would see him in Paul's behavior and words. Look, the truth is that reality is hard for us to grasp. It's much easier for us to think of him that he, you know, invisible him that's right beside us. But he is with us, but the weight of the New Testament simply states that he is in us and we are in him. He is in me. He's in you. He's in us, in all that we do, in all that we experience. In us, he acts. He feels our sorrows. He knows our joys. For me to live, what does Paul say, is Christ. That means that the experience I am going through at this very moment, what I'm dealing with physically, emotionally, mentally, what I'm dealing with What I'm going through is being experienced and and done by Jesus within me. It is he 
who is now going to buy the turkey at the store, going to class, going to, to, the, to the company that I work at. He has continual access to human life in us and by us. We, we, we are not passive robots, hello? We, we have full participation in life, making true choices, this is the glorious, in my book, mystery of the faith. You have the mathematics, I call it, of the new, new covenant. And that mathematic is one plus one equals one. He is one with us. Experiencing the, the, the tiresomeness of us that, that, we have to, that, you know, that we have to work with. For it is he working in that sense, when you're working, have you ever worked with people that just wore the tar out of you? I guess so. But I'm saying as, as you are working with them, he is alongside those people in us. He experiences the frustrating <laughs> driver, okay, in the rush hour. He is with Just thinking of the older person who's driving really slow, and it's always after church, right? Kind of thing. But he laughs in our celebrations as well. He weeps at the graveside of your loved one, experiencing your loss. In you, he faces your temptations and pressures of life. He faces the opportunities and the challenges of life. And in you, he wills, he wills to accept them. And experiencing them in us, he is ever present to our inmost selves as the strength, the wisdom, and the ability to live in each situation. Our lives are not something we, we tell them about in our, our nightly report, you know, in, to him in prayer. Why? Because he has lived them in us, second by second by second. This life is not the domain of some hermit, so spiritual as to live out in, in some kind of a monk's cell or something. All the commands to love or to put away the works of the flesh are addressed to the mundane flow of life that we live in the home and at the job, surrounded by very ordinary people. It's, it's around the dinner table that we put away anger and malice and put on love. It is on the job that his strength that's within us, we deal with envy, we deal with greed and, and magnify him in our bodies. He listens and ministers at the coffee pot to the hurting people that are around us. We are, are not his glove puppets, okay? We are not non-participating robots or some ventriloquist doll. The glorified Jesus is in us, and our walk of faith is choosing to die to the desires of the flesh 
that seek to live independently of him and as a result fulfill the lie. And he said to helplessly draw on his strength that is within us. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for speaking not only to us, but in us. Thank you for making real the relationship we have with you. Lord, let it not be something that, that is simply a head knowledge of, of what is, but let the Holy Spirit tap us on the shoulder to a revelation of what that is that literally overwhelms us. I am in him and he is in me. And what does that mean? How does that how is that lived out? How is that, Lord, I pray that this night there is not some just form of understanding that takes place, but let your word become flesh. Let it become vivid and real. Let it be something that bothers us, stirs us, excites us, and puts us in awe. Let us understand spiritually, emotionally. Let us renew our minds that I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can you say amen to that tonight? Would you stand with me? If there is a reality I wished for every believer, it is the reality of the Holy Spirit making real that union with each of us. You know, I've often said that there are three levels to Christian maturity. One is knowing that God is for us. That preempts it. God came for me. God, God's love for me. God's, you know, saved me. God is for me. But then the next level is God in me. Christ in you. The hope of glory. And the third one is Christ as me which is where I'm trying to show you where that level transcends. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, I get that. I understand that. Christ in me. No, you don't. Not until you've really gotten a hold of Christ in you. Until that is so real, you'll never know. You'll never understand what it means to have Christ as you. Those are the levels that, that, that John points out in his, his first epistle, his, his, his first John, little children, young men, fathers. God is in us. How's it like being lived out? When you're walking through all that garbage, that junk, and he's walking through it with you. But our concept is, oh, he's, he's out there someplace. Yeah, he's walking alongside you. No, he's not. He's in you. What does that mean to you? How does that play out for you? How does that blow your mind? 
How does that cause you to worship him? How does that cause you to rest? There's so much more, is there not? We never, ever stop in that revelation knowledge of who he is. There's more. There's so much more. We'll get back to this. But in the meantime, think on those things. Lord, bless them. Encourage them, strengthen them. Renew them, restore them. Speak to them by your spirit. Hold them captive by your presence. Not something out here as much as in here. Stir them up. Remind them. Speak to them. And may God overwhelm them. Be with them in their coming ins and their going outs. Prosper them. Protect them. Keep them safe. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Thanksgiving.